The Church Media Podcast, episode number 75, Motion Graphics 201 with Jason Watson. Let's do it. Hey there. Welcome to the Church Media Podcast. The definitive po- podcast for helping you create dynamic experiences and build solid media productions into your church. We're bringing you knowledge and insight from top media professionals from around the world. Useful, practical content in the areas of live production, design, leadership, digital communications, and more. Show notes for this episode and all archive episodes of the show are available online at 1230media.com slash podcast. And now, broadcasting from the ministry headquarters of 1230 Media, here's your host, church media coach, Carl Barnhill. Hey guys, thanks for listening to the podcast. I'm Carl, hanging out with you each and every week. Fresh episodes of the podcast every Monday, just for you. Bringing the best minds in the church media space together. We're helping you create memorable experiences and build solid volunteer teams at your church. This week on the show, part two of my interview with Jason Watson from DeviantMonk.com. Jason is one of the best motion designers in church media today. Last week, we talked about Jason's process of producing motion graphics content and how you can get started in bringing your projects to life. We talked about how he scripts his videos, where he pulls music and elements from, the software and tools he uses, and more. If you missed it, be sure to catch up. Just go to 1230media.com forward slash 074 to listen to that show today. Very, very insightful. You're going to learn a ton from Jason again this week as well. Motion Graphics 201 today on the show. Your professor, Jason Watson, is on the way. Class will be in session right after this. And now, your church media resource of the week. Software, websites, gadgets, and tools that will resource your creativity and your ministry. Hey everybody, this is Josh Honkin, the worship pastor at Montgomery Community Church in Cincinnati, Ohio, bringing you the church media resource of the week. Today I wanted to take a minute to talk about Ableton Live. If you ask Siri, she's going to mess it up. But it's able, like our God is able, and ton, like a ton of bricks. Ableton is headquartered in Berlin, Germany, and they make software and hardware for studio and live use. You can check it out at ableton.com. Some people think Ableton is just for DJs or electronic music, but it's actually great for worship pastors too. The primary way that I use Ableton is to run all of our clicks, count-ins, song cues, pads, and multi-tracks. It comes in extremely handy and brings a consistent quality to every song. It cuts down on dead air between songs, and it has seemingly endless possibilities for automation, including triggering your lyrics in ProPresenter, lighting cues, videos, and more. It also has great warp and transpose features that make these processes very simple. The great thing is you can use it as a metronome, or you can use it as the brain for a pretty insanely intricate and detailed operation. There are so many videos and resources out there for how to use Ableton in church. Loop Community and Multitracks are two great places to start, since both of them have a ton of free tutorials. If you haven't considered it, and you have a contemporary service or worship band at your church, it's definitely worth a look. From what I see on the website, you can try it free for 30 days and see what you think. In my experience, Ableton has glued our band together and simplified transitions. I look forward to seeing how we can leverage it even more at my church. Well, that's it for me, and I hope you've enjoyed this week's edition of Church Media Resource of the Week. 
free resources for your team, visit 1230media.com slash training. This is an exclusive interview from 1230 Media and Carl Barnhill. Get shareable content and free resources for your team at 1230media.com slash podcast. Here's Carl now. All right, talk to me about your timeline. How long does it take to create a motion graphics bumper or explainer video from start to finish? <laughs> uh, that's, I've, mm, <laughs> that has a wide range of answers, I suppose. Um, I'll, I'll take a minute video as like an example, um, and I'd say best case scenario. So let's say I have a minute bumper or a minute explainer video to do. Um, Usually I'll try to, uh, I'll usually try to schedule or block out at least probably about three weeks or so. That usually gives me enough time to concept and script as well as um, create the elements, create the uh, graphics and then animate it as well as find music, you know, all the kind of stuff that goes into it. A lot of that really kind of depends on who I'm doing it for and what the client wants and, you know, how long the feedback takes and all that kind of stuff. I've had ones where, you know, it's day one all the way to, you know, the end of the three weeks, you know, start to finish, no problems. I've had some that they're supposed to give me feedback and it, you know, comes back a week and a half later and so the timeline gets pushed back. I send a revision, takes another week and a half for feedback, and so by the time you know I'm done, it's been like a two-month project. And <laughs> but as far as like myself, um, I'd say usually about I can probably knock it out in two weeks. I just try to usually give myself as much of a bu- buffer as I can, and a lot of it will depend on you know how complex it is, what the you know client wants, and so I guess it's kind of hard to nail down an answer. But um, as far as like the animation goes. I can, you know, pretty well knock out a minute of work pretty well in, inside of a week, but it's all the other stuff that kind of piles on top of that as far as the timelines go. So it takes you a week to do a minute, roughly. It can, yeah, it, it, yeah, depending on how complex it is, but yeah, it can. <laughs> so give me the horror stories of that you didn't back up a power surge. Give me a horror story. Uh. Well, fortunately, I haven't lost uh, anything because of uh, not backing up. I learned that lesson pretty early on, so I've been backing up um, pretty consistently. I did have a near uh, near horror story. I was, uh, let's see, this is, I think, maybe like three years ago, I think. I was working from home um, on some stuff, and I had a bunch of files on... And I think files that I was actually working on uh, sitting on this external hard drive. And so I was, you know, I hadn't, I had the same kind of model of the hard drive, probably a few other models of it, never had any problems with them. And so I was working off this thing. I had transferred everything over to my computer and I was working on my computer. I'd pretty much gotten close to finishing it up. I think I needed some space or something. And so I put everything back onto the external hard drive and made the mistake of deleting the stuff on my computer off of my computer. And so, you know, dismounted it, went about my business. And I came back 
I think the next morning, I think there might have been lightning storm that night, and I left it plugged in. And so I plugged it in to the computer and got nothing. I think I was getting, you know, that kind of beeping sound that sometimes do when they, you know, go bad or start to go bad or something like that. Or it was revving up and not mounting or whatever. And so I was kind of in a panic attack because I needed to get this project out the door. And so I was, uh, you know, on tons of online forums looking at, you know, how to get your hard drive to mount when it won't mount. And, you know, pretty much everyone was did all kind of the standard stuff and wasn't working and tried some, you know, disk recovery stuff and it wasn't working. Finally, um, I wasn't, I'm not, I can't remember what I did. I think I actually called the manufacturer about it and one of their tech reps kind of walked me through it and uh, I mounted up and I was like, thank goodness. And so I quickly moved everything over onto my computer and stopped using it from that day forward. And I think that was actually when I uh, started doing online backup, just because I didn't ever want that to happen again, as well as doing some other kinds of backup. And so I uh, got really close there, but fortunately it didn't uh, bite me. There was another time, this was my own fault, I had finished up a project, and uh, I think it was like a, a minute animation or something like that. And... So I'd finished it. I think I'd put it up on Dropbox because I needed to send it off to a client. And I, so I had it on Dropbox, or so I thought, and then I deleted it off my computer thinking I had it backed up somewhere else. Um, when I went to, I needed to make a change or something in this piece. And so I went on to Dropbox and looked into the folder and there was some stuff there, but not all of the stuff. And so I just had that sinking feeling in my stomach, and I was looking all over my computer thinking maybe I'd named it something else, looking in the trash, but the trash had been emptied, looking on external hard drives, looking for online backups. It wasn't anywhere, and so I think I had to uh, redo a lot of it. And so that one kind of – now I'm very careful with Dropbox, so I've learned my lesson. What, What online backup system do you use? I've been using CrashPlan. Okay. It's a yeah. It's a one of the things I liked about it was that um, it doesn't have uh, data caps, um, and so and I have tons of I think right now I have like four terabytes backed up or something on there, something mm-hmm. pretty close to that. And so that was one of the uh, selling points for me. Also, um, they have this thing that they call seeding where if you do have a ton of stuff that you need to um, back up, you know, initially, they'll send you a hard drive that you can put everything onto, send it right. back to them, and so it kind of does an initial backup. And so those two things, I think, were really uh, pluses for me, and, you know, it's worked really well for me, so I've liked it a lot. Tell me about your render times. So I have a story here, just a rabbit trail is okay. that I've uh, read a lot about how to render and uh, render times and, th- and things like that. And I read that the first Transformers movie, when they redid uh, Transformers, or Michael Bay made the first movie, that it took about two days to render one frame. Um, <laughs> so, And that, I'm sure that was with a, a farm of, of computers. So in, yeah. our, in our little home offices... How long does it take you to, to usually render a minute or give me a, a good sense of your render times? Yeah, um, actually, that made me remember I had a friend who used to, 
he always watched the uh, extras for DVDs, and he said that for like the Lord of the Rings movies, I think the Treebeard character, the original uh, model that they had for him, uh, they couldn't even render it, and so they had to really uh, tear down the uh, complexity of the model just to be able to render it at all. Anyway, so another rabbit trail off the rabbit trail. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so that's, that always just kind of blows my mind. I'm sure like the Pixar stuff is pretty crazy too. But um, yeah. so for me, uh, let's see. It really depends on the type of project for uh, kind of vectory illustrated types of things that don't have a lot of procedural stuff like particles or, you know, things like that. The render times are actually pretty pretty fast, um, just because there's not a whole lot of stuff to crank through. Um, for like a minute piece, let me think, I was doing something the other day. Um, I don't think I was even using like any textures or anything. It was just straight up like shapes and vectors. I think it was all shapes and vectors and text. Um, I think it was actually a two and a half minute piece, and I think it actually rendered out pretty much almost real time, maybe even a little faster, just because it was able to crunch through it pretty quickly. Um, on the other hand, I was doing like a 30-second motion loop the other day, which used just tons of effects, um, had like uh, some displacement stuff going on, was using several layers of particular uh, effects upon effects and, you know, pre-comps within pre-comps, pre-comps all the way down, you know, kind of something like that. Um, that thing is only about 30 seconds long, but I think one of them took like three and a half hours to render. And so, um, granted, this is like on a, uh, one of the 27-inch iMacs, so it's not the most powerful computer out there, but um, I would say it's usually, for for me, most of the time, it's somewhere between, I mean, because most of my pieces aren't pretty aren't very long, so if it's more of a vectory type thing, it's usually somewhere between five to ten minutes. If I'm using a lot of effects, probably anywhere between... So like a minute piece, probably about uh, 25 minutes to 45 minutes. Wow. How much RAM do you have on your machine? Uh, 32 wow. gigabytes. So, yeah, just, I mean, I don't do a whole lot of like 3D models or anything like that. So I think that helps with the render times. And I usually try to um, be as conscientious about, you know, what I'm how many effects I'm using and things like that, just because I don't want it to take forever. And, you know, sometimes I'll be, I mean, I used to go effect crazy back in the day. And I think everyone who starts out doing just kind of goes effects crazy. I remember when I first uh, got it, I was actually using motion, Apple's motion instead of after effects. I think the first piece that I ever made, it was basically just every scene was me just going through the effects menu and just applying a different effect every scene just to kind of, you know, because I didn't know what else to do. But that thing took forever to render. But um, nowadays I just try to either pare down the effects as much as I can or even try to find ways to achieve the same effect in a more efficient way if possible. Sometimes it's not always possible. Uh, so it just really depends on what I'm doing. So does pre-comping and things like that help with that or not? Um, in my experience, I've read that, uh, pre-comping actually increases the amount of, uh, processing power that's required. I would say it's probably true. Um, most of my, like, character animations use a lot of nested pre-comps. 
and they usually take quite a bit longer to render, even though they might be pure vectors as well. And so that's kind of another thing you want to be careful of when you're in, when you're building out a piece is to be as economical with the pre-comps as you can, especially as they get nested further and further down inside of each other, just because it takes After Effects more time to, you know, look through them and render out everything within them, so... I find that sometimes in organizing those, like that's what's the time-consuming piece for me is to keep clicking and getting, or you know, keep getting down into my nested comps. Like, hang on a second, oh, yeah. where did I put that? Okay, yeah. Um, where's that? Where does that live? I have to kind of backtrack and anyway, that that takes. <laughs> maybe I'm just oh, yeah. not as efficient. Um, okay, no, it's, it's true. Sometimes there's just no getting around it. There's this one. I got I found this uh, template online. It's for like some kind of a like glitchy kind of TV glitchy TV effect or something like that. I've never seen so many pre comps as this <laughs> like project template had. It was oh my goodness. I mean, I've gotten pretty good at like you know figuring all that out and being able to like dig down into them and know what each is doing. But I mean, this thing just. It didn't end. Yeah, <laughs> I don't yeah. think I ever got to the bottom of yeah, it. Yeah, some of them are crazy. crazy. Okay, a couple <laughs> questions I want to ask you from your blog. You recently wrote a post about uh, your After Effects wish list, things that you wish that After Effects had. So give me a few of the things uh, on your list. Yeah. Um, I tend to work a lot with the uh, with shapes in uh, After Effects, and so a lot of the shape layers and things like that. And... The nice thing about them is that they're they're really powerful, and they kind of actually function off like mini pre-comps for shapes because you can have like a bunch of different shapes within one shape layer, and so it kind of makes it nice to organize and stuff like that. The problem, though, is that when you want to get to any of the properties of any of the uh, shape shapes within the shape layer, there's no like keyboard shortcuts or anything to get to them, and so it makes it sometimes just really really difficult to isolate one or to modify a bunch of them at the same time just because you're constantly twirling down and twirling down and twirling down. There's some uh, scripts out there that can help you kind of get through them a lot easier, but there's not really a good way to kind of uh, to get to the properties easier. And so one thing that Apple's Motion had that I really liked back when I was using it is whenever you would click on anything – it would basically bring up all properties for that layer in kind of like this panel, which I, I can't remember what it was called. But so basically, like After Effects, like say you have an effect on a layer, if you click on that layer up in the effects panel, it'll show you all the properties for whatever effect it is. And so I would really like to see like some kind of like shape properties panel that would basically contextually reveal itself when you click on a shape so that you can, you know, easily access all the properties of different shapes in the shape layer. I think that would be really, really helpful because right now it kind of feels like shapes are just kind of there and they're really useful, but a lot of times they're just hard to, not as efficient to work with as you could. I think something like that would be really cool to put in there. Um, Another thing I'd like to see is to um, have the the vertices or the points of like a mask or a shape be have each of those points be individually animatable. 
right now you can kind of do it, but it puts all the animations onto like one path animation, which makes it really hard to go back and modify something because you're basically having to modify everything at once or it just kind of screws everything up. And so I'd like to be able to see, be able to split out all those points into individual like properties or positions or whatever. Maybe you could uh, parent them to nulls or something like that just would make it really a lot easier to work with shapes and masks. There's actually a, a tool out there called, uh, I think it's called um, Mask Avenger on aescripts.com. It actually does some of that. I haven't got it yet, but I'm kind of getting to that point where I might do it. It's like 150 bucks, which is why I haven't gotten it yet. But <laughs> it's one of those ones that's always very tempting to get, especially when I'm working with a lot of shapes and stuff like that. <laughs> What are some other places like aescripts.com uh, that you like to go to? And what are, maybe what are some of your favorite scripts that have really helped your productivity? Yeah, um, aescripts is probably, like for, I would say it's one of, it's probably the go-to that I have. Um, it has a lot of really useful stuff. It's not really as much plugins as more, I would say most of it's kind of functionality helpers. Um, at least those are the ones that I find the most useful. Um, and so it is really great at kind of having stuff like that. Let's see, some of the scripts there. There's this one called, um, uh, let's see, Ray Dynamic Color. Um, it's kind of, well, this, it was actually out before um, After Effects had the libraries in it. And one of the things that I didn't ever like about After Effects is how there was no, how there was no color palette available in there that always just kind of drove me crazy. And so for most of my projects, I'd end up, you know, just drawing these squares in Photoshop of different colors for my color palette and then bringing it in After Effects and just kind of sticking it there in the composition window so I could, you know, see my colors and then sample them and stuff like that. And so uh, Redynamic Color basically kind of provided you a way to have color palettes, but also went a little bit further in that you could uh, link the colors via expressions to different layers. And so what was really helpful about it is, uh, say you had like a, a motion background that you needed to iterate it out a couple times with different colors. And instead of going back through each one and like changing every single color, what you could do is basically create different color palettes and then just swap out the palette between projects and it would automatically change all the colors to what you defined them as. And so I always thought that one was pretty useful. Um, I'm trying to think of some other ones that I've been using here. Um, well, I'll come back to that in a minute. Um, another place that I like to go is Video Copilot. Um, it's great for both training because it has a lot of uh, tutorials and stuff like that for a bunch of different stuff, even if you're just starting out with After Effects. It also has some great plugins like... Um, uh, optical flares, which is great for creating lens flares and stuff like that, goes quite a bit beyond After Effects built-in uh, lens flare. And so I use that one a lot. It also has a good uh, kind of glitchy uh, plugin called, I think it's called Twitch maybe? Yeah, Twitch. Yeah. It, um, yeah, it's a really cool one. Um, not always useful for any for every project, but if you need kind of good glitchy transitions or, you know, kind of, muddy up project for kind of stylistic purpose. Uh, it's really good at doing that. Um, they also have this fun free one called Saber, 
which uh, gives you some basically lightsaber type effects. <laughs> you don't have to use it just for lightsabers, but it gives you some fun glow options for like lines and you know, things like that if you want to do like a neon type of thing or any kind of time you need some good bold glows. It's really good at that. Um, another place that's good for plugins is Red Giant. Uh, they do, they're uh, as far, well, I use uh, Trap, well, yeah, they own Trap Code, code which yeah. does Particular. Um, so I use Particular a lot. It's, I mean, After Effects has a pretty good built-in uh, particle generator, but it's just not easy to work with, whereas Particular is much easier to work with. I would say if you're doing After Effects and you're doing motion graphics at some point, you're probably going to be getting particular just because it's useful for quite a lot of things. Um, they also have um, form, which is good for like, it's good for a lot of things, but like generating star fields and kind of flowing particles that don't live and die, but you know, are constantly there. They have some good uh, volumetric light stuff like shine. And I can't remember the other one. That's a good one. There's also one called Mir, M-I-R, which is awesome for creating some, like, triangulation type of shapes. And that's not all you can do with it, but it's fun for stuff like that, kind of generating some faux 3D objects. And uh, so that's a great one. Uh, some other scripts from AE scripts that I like to use, um, there's one super useful one I found called True Comp Duplicator. Um, so basically, whenever you have a, say, like a pre-comp, um, and you have, let's say you have like a pre-comp within that and another pre-comp within that, if you go to duplicate the like top layer pre-comp, it will, you know, make a separate copy of that, but it won't, but After Effects won't make a separate, indi a separate individual copy of like the one inside of it. And so that can kind of make things difficult if like you need to reuse that for something else. And so this true comp duplicator will actually take a pre-comp and no matter how many comps, pre-comps are nested inside of it, it'll duplicate every single one of those, relink up all any expressions that you have. So you basically have an independent, another independent pre-comp without having to worry about, you know, changing stuff and accidentally, you know, screwing something up. So that's been a really useful one. Um, there's one called puppet tools, which is, good uh, for if you want to use the Puppet tool quite a bit because um, the Puppet tool, as it is inside of After Effects, is a really really not the easiest thing to work with, but Puppet Tools makes it easy to basically link up nulls to your Puppet pins, and then it's much easier to manipulate those. It also can do some, uh, create some inverse kinematics, which is also helpful. Um, another one I've been using a lot, which... It's a pretty simple one. It's called Text Evo, and it basically makes, I think, text animation super, super simple. And it's kind of one of those things where you almost feel bad about using it because it almost feels like you're cheating. But it's kind of like one of those things where it's going to do the things I'm going to do anyway, and it's going to do them faster and uh, easier, so I might as well use it. So <laughs> that's a really good one to use. What uh, all does it wanna... do? It basically creates... Uh, text animations like you can you you like a, apply an in animation and then you can choose different properties to apply that to so like position opacity uh scale blur all that kind of stuff and it'll automatically animate the in and then you just slide a keyframe over to determine how uh long 
the animation is. Mm. And you can do the same for the out. And so if you if you just need some quick uh, like titles that come in or something like that, and you have a bunch of them that you don't want to have to hand animate every single one, it's really super useful for that. And I find myself using it a lot just because it's, it's really quick and really easy. There's one more um, I'll mention. Let's see. I'm looking at my long list of uh, scripts and plugins here. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I have this one called uh, Joysticks and Sliders. It's a pretty new one. This is a really good one for character animation, but also for other stuff. You can basically uh, use it to create different poses, and then it will uh, interpolate between the poses. So basically, let's say I had a head of a character, and I wanted to kind of do almost like that faux 3D head turn. So basically what I do is I just need to create five keyframes. I'll create one that's like the center facing position. Then I'll create one that's like the turn left, do one that's turn right, do one that's, you know, look up, look down. You make all those keyframes, each of the layers, and then you just basically click a button. It'll create this joystick that you can basically just move around to the different corners, and it'll interpolate all those movements without you having to do that yourself. And so... I used that on a recent project, and it made it so much easier to do that kind of thing. It was actually the first time I've tried the 3D head turn thing just because it's pretty complicated to do otherwise, and so that was really helpful to me. These are very useful, man. Um, I'd love to um, ask you another question about a a blog post. You recently wrote uh, an article called How to Be an Art Thief, uh, where you talk about the idea of the phrase "good artists copy, great artists steal." Now you have a unique take on this. I- explain that. Yeah. Um, so the "good artists copy, great artists steal" is kind of one of those phrases that I see or have seen that get thrown around almost always to justify like just ripping something off. <laughs> and unfortunately, it's usually it's a lot of times used by people in the church who are, you know. I mean, we've all seen the graphics where, you know, they there's a movie out or something like that, and, you know, they'll just tweak one word here or there and, you know, basically use the whole graphic, but then just kind of slap a different title on it. And it's like, hey, we're just parodying it, parodying it or something like that. Or, hey, good artist copy, great artist steal. And I think one of the reasons that the phrase gets uh, thrown around that way is, like, most often it's attributed to Picasso, at least what I've seen, and so it's like... If Picasso said it, you know, it must be true or whatever. Um, but as I did some research into that, I noticed that the, like, attribute, I mean, Picasso might have said it, but uh, from what I can tell and from what my research showed, it didn't really originate with him. It rather seems to have taken, gotten taken from a poet of the early 20th century named T.S. Eliot, who's actually one of my favorite poets, by the way. And what he was doing when he was talking about this idea of copying versus stealing is he was contrasting the way that uh, lousy poets basically regurgitate what they take from others, whereas great poets steal, in quotes, from the greats of the past. But they do this, they steal not by copying or parodying, but rather what they do is they become so familiar with the work that they're, you know, quote-unquote, stealing that it becomes such a part of them that they're able to take the essence of it and transform it into something new and into something unique and, you know, basically put a new spin on it, a new look at it from a different perspective and basically create an entirely new work 
even though, you know, the inspiration for it, you know, comes from something else. And so in this way, you know, they take what's best from the past and they breathe life into it in the present is basically how I describe it. And so the, I guess the essence of it is that when you, you know, quote unquote, steal as a great artist, what you're doing is you're indebted to the person that you're stealing from, but the the theft that you're you know doing isn't just to you know create something that looks like what they did, but rather it's to you know I guess take in so much of what has been created that it you know affects you so much that you're able to produce something else because of it and something that's beautiful and remarkable in its own light in its own right. And so I guess you know from that perspective I just find it usually pretty unfortunate that a lot of times we use, you know, aphorisms like that to, you know, justify, you know, just straight off ripping off things or, you know, creating the not quite parodies of, you know, popular culture. I mean, I remember like when the show Heroes was out, I don't know how many church graphics I saw, you know, were like, new series coming Heroes or whatever. (laughs) And, you know, I suppose on some level there's maybe nothing wrong with that, but it just kind of like, I guess, when I think about it, we have, you know, we talk about how, you know, God is the greatest thing, you know, that can be conceived of, and it's absolutely true. You know, God's the author of all creation, of all beauty, you know, and so when I think about it that way, if, you know, if those things are true, which I definitely believe they are, then it seems like we have, you know, a responsibility to create beautiful things rather than just taking, you know, the stale stuff that's left over from the pop culture, you know, and regurgitating it just so we can, you know, try to be, you know, relevant or whatever, you know, justification we might give to it. And, you know, rather presenting, you know, a vision of what really is beautiful, what really is true, what really is good. And so I guess I kind of see that's how art interacts with, you know, the Christian faith and with, you know, theology and all that kind of stuff is that we should really be striving to, you know, create beautiful things, striving to, uh, you know, praise God through the things that we make. And I think sometimes when we just try to be like what we see out in the world, that, you know, just kind of, well, most of the time it's not effective. It all just kind of falls flat, I think, from the potential that we have and the responsibility that we're given. Okay, one more question for you as we wrap uh, today. Mm -hmm. If a church wants a motion graphics piece, uh, and I know this is coming from a motion freelance motion designer, but should we Mm -hmm. spend the money on a motion designer like yourself, or do you think our in-house designers should spend the time learning how to create uh, compelling motion graphics projects? Absolutely. You should give me as much money as you want to. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Um, I guess uh, a lot of times I think that's going to, I'd see instead of either or, I guess maybe a little bit of both, and I don't want to necessarily equivocate on it, but um, I think when you're thinking about hiring out for a piece or, you know, let me start, or when you're thinking about creating a motion graphics piece, the first thing you have to realize is that it usually takes a lot of time. And, I mean, that's really whether you're paying someone in-house to do it or training someone in-house to do it or whether you're outsourcing it to someone. Uh, most of what you're – I mean, you're paying for some, uh, you know, for the technique, for the skill, 
all that for the experience. But you're also a lot of times paying for time. And so sometimes I guess you really have to kind of look at, you know, as far as your priorities, how high does it rank at? How high does it rank on what you want to do, what you want to accomplish with your ministry, with the vision of your church, that kind of stuff. I know when I was working uh, at my former employer, um, even though we had we had a in-house video team, there were sometimes we would actually hire things out, not because uh, we didn't think they were important, but just because uh, it wasn't, you know, at that moment the priority for you know what we were trying to do for the church as a whole, or for whatever, you know, ministries we were working with. And so I think you kind of just got to look at it that way as, as, you know, where does it rank on, you know, what you're doing? And um, if you don't have anybody, um, I would say that, you know, maybe if maybe you're a church that's just starting going off, going with uh, motion graphics, wanting to create stuff, Maybe, you know, try outsourcing it, one, just to kind of see how it works, see how you like the process, you know, see how effective it is in what you're doing. And then, you know, maybe you can figure out, is this something we want to keep on doing? If so, do we want to keep outsourcing this? Because, uh, I mean, outsourcing, you know, can be helpful because sometimes it could be, it's definitely cheaper than, you know, usually hiring someone to work in-house, especially if you're not doing a whole lot a year. But it can also be challenging because you don't have that face-to-face interaction, and sometimes it's not as easy to uh, communicate, you know, the essence of what you're wanting to do, like over the phone or to someone who's not within the culture of your church. And so those are some of the things that you probably want to think about um, as you're going forward. Um, Learning motion graphics is also a pretty time-intensive thing, so if you have people already working in your church who are... uh, wanting to get into that, just I would say know that it's something that doesn't happen right away. It takes a lot of time to learn, um, but it can definitely be very useful going forward. So those are some of the options and uh, potentials you just have to weigh as you're uh, looking into it. Well, man, thank you for your time today. Do you have any other uh, final thoughts on motion graphics and the church? Um, I would say that, I mean... I do this for a living, so I definitely think it's a valuable thing. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't do it if I didn't think that was true. Um, one thing I think about motion graphics is they can um, – sometimes it's easy to – like anything, it's easy to overdo, but when you can do it right and do it well, it can be really impactful. And so I would say that as you look – for anything that you're doing, you know, look at you know, not just is this going to be something that's cool to do or because we saw someone else doing it, but rather, is this going to be something that really works in our uh, context? Is it something that we can do well? And, uh, you know, as you look into those questions, I think, you know, a lot of times you might find that this is uh, you know, something you want to do, and I think it can be something that will can really minister to the people in your church and, you know, also can be really cool because, you know, there's some value in that, too. <laughs> hmm. Um, well, how, how can we follow you if a church is interested in, in hiring you? How do we how do we find you online? My uh, website is deviantmonk.com. Uh, that's D-E-V-I-A-N-T-M-O-N-K.com. Uh, I also blog occasionally, uh, sometimes about motion graphics, sometimes about very long theological posts um, at blog.deviantmonk.com. So feel free to check them out contact me and I'd love to talk to you. 
Well, man, thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Uh, immense uh, insight, just great insight, great tools, very practical. I, I really appreciate you coming on, man. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. This has been an all-access interview from 1230 Media and Carl Barnhill. Get exclusive content for your team online now at 1230media.com. Now available on Blu-ray and DVD. I hate what people like your clients stand for. We're going to prove once and for all that God is dead. You're passionate about what you believe. I mean, let's face it, it's why you're in trouble in the first place. A student asked a question about remarks allegedly made by Jesus, and your answer incorporated scripture itself. Yes. What were you thinking, Grace? I gave an honest answer to a student's legitimate question. I am not going to be afraid to say the name Jesus. They're asking that you be fired plus revocation of your teaching certificate. You're on your own. So what's the good news? I don't like to lose. They've been dreaming of a case like this. They want to make an example of you. Their true motivation was to take an innocent question and turn it into an opportunity to preach. The message of the gospel has a standing in the way of a lot of things that powerful people want. We're at war. I'm not in the matter of Thorley versus Wesley. Mr. Kane will insist faith isn't on trial here, but that is exactly what is on trial. If we grant Miss Wesley the right to violate the law, then our society will crumble. The four Gospels contain the actual words of Jesus. You're looking to prove Jesus Christ existed? That's ridiculous. If we're going to insist that a Christian's right to believe is subordinate to all other rights, then it's not a right. Somebody is always going to be offended. a decision. I would rather stand with God and be judged by the world than stand with the world and be judged by God. Buy God's Not Dead 2 and take a stand for what you believe. God bless you. Careful, or you might end up on trial. Available on Blu-ray Combo Pack, DVD, and Digital HD. To load up on tons of free content, including links and downloadable PDFs of the things that Jason mentioned, you can visit the show notes page for this episode at 1230media.com forward slash 075 as in episode number 75. On the next Church Media Podcast. Next week on the show, we're going to be talking about how to provide consistent, effective training opportunities for your production team. I've led hundreds of volunteers over the years, and one of the keys to having a successful production team is preparing them well for Sunday. We're going to talk all about that. I'm going to give you some very practical helps and tricks for training your team well. Don't miss that. We're going to have a lot of fun together. I want to thank the legend David Michael Hyde. DavidMichaelHyde.com is his website. You can find him there slicing up some music for film and digital media. Thank you for listening this week. Go out there, guys, and create some incredible experiences this weekend. I'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening to the Church Media Podcast. Please take a minute today to rate and review the show in iTunes. We'll catch you right here next week for another episode of the Church Media Podcast. 